Dr. Rina here, and a very warm welcome back to Life and Smile Season 4. Today we have a particularly inspiring episode in store for you, recorded right here in our Harley Street studio. Sitting across from me is one of fashion's leading writers, thinkers, and commentators. As the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of the business of fashion, he has created the ultimate resource for creatives, executives, and entrepreneurs all over the world as a voice of authority of the $2.5 trillion global fashion and luxury industries. It is, of course, Imran Ahmed. Welcome to Life and Smile. Well, what a pleasure to be here. Thank you. <laughs> So our listeners are a real 360 mix across the global dental industry and across business as well. Here on the show, it's been so inspiring to hear the often contrasting sort of day-to-day -day routines and how leaders really make it work on a day-to-day mm -hmm. -day basis. So talk us through, let's take it from the beginning on those early years on starting out and then sort of how your career progressed after that. So to take us to um, day one. <laughs> day one, I guess... Depends when you want to start, you know. Um, my first job out of college was uh, as a management consultant. I, I went to McGill University in Montreal, and I loved Montreal so much that although all my friends were moving to New York and Paris and Toronto and Los Angeles and London, I decided <laughs> to stay in Montreal just because I loved the city so much. It it's really one of the most underrated cities on the planet, I think. And it was so special. And I felt like it was o I was only just beginning, in part because I really wanted to learn French. Right. You know, Canada's a bilingual country. And yes. so if you arrive at a Canadian airport, you'll see signs in French and English. But there's an English-speaking part of Canada and a French-speaking part of Canada. And Montreal is, of course, the capital of Quebec, which is the main French-speaking province, and I was just so taken with the culture and language, and I thought, well, when am I going to have a chance to work in a fully bilingual work environment? Right. So I stayed, I took a job at a little division of Deloitte Consulting, which at the time was called Braxton Associates, it was like a little strategy consulting boutique, and um, my job was to advise companies on business problems. And this was in the early days of the internet. So, you know, email was just really starting to take off. And, um, you know, we were starting to use internet tools, but then there was also still like kind of old school ways of gathering information. So right. it was a very unique hybrid moment. So that's how it started as a pretty nerdy analytical management consultant. And then what was your next step? So sort of when you set up your blog in 2007, what was, how did that all kind of arrive? Well, what happened in between was, you know, that job started in 1997. Right. So it was 10 years until I actually started uh, writing BOF. In between that time, I moved to London. I transferred within uh, Braxton and got, a, you know, got a job here. Uh, so that's when I first came to London in 1999. And then I was only here for about six months, um, traveling in and out of London and traveling all over Europe to work. And then I got into business school at yeah. Harvard and quit my job, shaved my head, dyed my hair blonde <laughs> and traveled, <Nice. laughs> traveled all around the world for um, six months, just getting ready for what I knew was going to be pretty seminal experience you know Harvard Business School is this kind of very storied a little bit intimidating institution right um 
So I showed up there, chopped off the remaining blonde in my hair, <laughs> and uh, began that adventure. I stayed there for two years, obviously. Uh, worked at McKinsey here in London over the summer. Yeah. And while I was at HBS, the dot-com bubble burst, and 9-11 happened. So it was a pretty pretty challenging moment in the world. And I wasn't able to go get a job in a creative industry as I hoped. I'd been interviewing with music companies and fashion companies and film companies, but I was lucky to have a job at all. And one of the jobs I was offered was to come back to McKinsey in London. So I moved back here, did the management consulting thing again for another three or four years. And then I had it. I was done. I went and asked for three months off. Um, which they kindly gave me. I went and did a Vipassana meditation course in South Africa. So that's 10 days of complete silence. No reading, no writing, no music, no eye contact. Incredible. How was that? How did you find that? That must have been... It was... Yeah, that was the inflection point of my life. Like I can honestly say that I wouldn't be doing what I do now were it not for that time there. And the whole experience of Vipassana is another 45-minute podcast. I won't, I, won't go, I won't go into too much detail other than to say it was really transformative for me. And that was the time and the place when I decided to step off this very well-defined overachiever business track and take a risk and try to do something on my own. And that's when Business of Fashion arrived as yes. Well, not exactly. Because okay. <laughs> the first step was actually I... I'd been meeting with lots of young fashion designers here in London, and the first idea was actually to create an incubator for young fashion designers where we would give them a bit of capital, support them on their operations, marketing, legal, finance, HR, like all the businessy side of what they had to do that no one teaches you at Central St. Martin's or at Parsons or at the Royal College of Art. They just for the most part, are taught to be creative. And so we thought, well, what if we provided that business backbone for their creativity? Unfortunately, the idea was ahead of its time. Um, It wasn't something that was really, the world was ready for yet. I think, you know, now there's incubators like that out there that are working really well. Right. And so the real story of the start of BOF is that I was keeping a private blog for my friends and family to follow my journey from McKinsey into the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. It was behind a password. And um, I, when the incubator failed, I took the password off that blog and I just started writing. And it was kind of like magic. It was January 2007. And... To this day, I'm still not exactly sure what the trigger was, but all of a sudden, people were signing up for, you know, from the beginning, there was an email newsletter uh, attached to it. So every time I wrote an an article or a blog post, as I called them at the time, it would be emailed out to the people in my database. And very quickly, I guess people started forwarding that email around and people that, you know, sparked and uh, sparked people to sign up to the email newsletter and then like in a few months it was already like 10,000 people and so and then I I remember one day I was looking through the database because I didn't have access to this database I didn't know how to do it I mean I'm not a technology person and I saw the names of the people who were subscribed and I was like 
basically I was like, holy shit. <laughs> wow. Like that's crazy. And, um, in the, in the day I was, you know, I'd managed to get some consulting gigs to like pay my bills and pay my rent. Um, I'd had to downsize my life. I moved out of my really nice one bedroom, um, big apartment in Notting Hill to a much smaller shared flat with, you know, another guy. And I was running BOF out of this little, you know, apartment in Notting Hill. And during the day I was, you know, earning my living as a consultant. And what happened was, is like, the more I wrote, the more people knew about BOF, the more people were interested in my ideas. And so I started doing speaking engagements. Mm -hmm. I started teaching. I started going all over the world and immersing myself in this incredible industry. And that, you know, the reason we, there's a mantra at BOF about the global fashion industry. I think one of the first things I really learned that wasn't really reflected in fashion media was that fashion wasn't this industry that was like, you know, isolated to Western Europe and North America as fashion is a global industry. It touches people all over the world. You know, most of the people who make our clothes are people of color in the global South, mostly women. And the more I traveled, the more I learned, the more I learned, the more inspired I was, the more inspired I was, the more ideas I had. And yeah, it just kind of grew from there. Wow. What a story. I mean, that must've been such a amazing feeling reading those names thinking wow these people are listening to my story and you're getting such amazing feedback when was the point then where where you sort of tipped to like okay this is what I want to do now full-time it was when I couldn't manage it all on my own I mean I by by 2012 I had one full-time assistant uh and I had an editor that was working with me part-time in New York much better writer and editor than I am because I wasn't trained as a writer. And we had contributors all over the world. But I was also overseeing developers and I, w- I was just doing, yeah, it was, I couldn't, Lots I just couldn't yeah. do it anymore. Yeah. And I was, one of my best friends said to me, she said, Aaron, you need help. Around the same time, investors started approaching me saying, right. well, what are you going to do with this blog? And I actually mm-hmm. never thought about it as a business. Like it wasn't, you know, I didn't sit in my apartment thinking, oh, I want to turn, create a mm. media company. Like, it was never something I had aspired to do. Um, funny story, though. A, f- a friend of mine from elementary school got in touch with me recently and shared some pictures with me of a, apparently a newspaper I was right. editing with her when we were in elementary school, which I'd completely <laughs> forgotten wow. about. And she, her mother found it in her storage somewhere. And she said to me, she's like, you were always meant to be doing this job, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> it was always inside you. For yeah. Sure. So, um, that really, that like lack of ability to manage it on my own plus kind of inbound investor interest made me realize, wow, well maybe there's, maybe instead of trying to build a consulting company, I should be yes. building a media company. So that's when it changed. And then with your writing, you mentioned you sort of weren't as good as you are now. How did you learn? Did you just learn with experience and time or how did you get better at the, at the craft? Writing is a craft. Yeah. And with any craft, you just have to write. Practice. The more you write and read, yes, the better you are. And by this stage, I'd probably written 500 articles, you know, pretty in-depth stuff. I'd started writing for the Financial Times um, I'd written for Vogue. You know, I started writing for professional publications. Yes. I started working with editors. I didn't even know what an editor was. 
and editors gave me feedback on my writing and I understand, oh, this is how I'm supposed to be working as an editor because I was an editor too, but I didn't know what that really meant. Um, But really the best way to become a good writer is to read a lot and write a lot. Right. And um, Business of Fashion has now become this multi-millions, you know, strong community over 200 countries, which is so impressive. And as you mentioned, the fashion industry, it's global, it's constantly evolving. Um, from everything you've done so far, what have been your sort of personal favorite projects to be involved in or topics sort of across your role? Oh. Or is it harder to pick? Well, it's just, it's just, I, you know, I, I guess what I'd say is my favorite part of my job is doing what you're doing now. It's just meeting people and hearing their stories. Like, it's just, it's such a privilege, you know? And the people that I get to meet, you know, I've interviewed Yoji Yamamoto and I've interviewed Karl Lagerfeld and I've interviewed Kate Moss and I've interviewed Malala Yousafzai and I've interviewed Serena Williams and I've interviewed Kim Kardashian. And I mean, I've interviewed the people shaping the culture and world we live in, you know, and to have the, the time to sit down with those people and learn from them and yes. hear their stories and get advice from them and kind of tap into their expertise, the craft and work that they've been focusing on, that's a, that's a real privilege. No, absolutely. And I feel like with podcasts, you get that deeper conversation and connection with someone, which you don't normally just do over, over a coffee. So, um, so uh, yeah, so share, sharing stories, I guess. Is there been any kind of um, recent stories that have really stood out for you um, on your platform? I guess, you know, the thing that I'm obsessed with right now is artificial intelligence. I, I just finished writing my weekly newsletter yes, I get those. <laughs> they're you, brilliant did you start getting brilliant. it so today brilliant. thank you today um i just started writing again like six weeks ago actually, yes i remember you I, mentioned the other day yeah, i'd yeah. stopped writing yeah because i got so busy yes with managing like 100 people and yeah. like the whole operation but it's been such a pleasure to start writing again and there's these little obsessions i have and i find you know what i found back in the early days which i'm finding again now is like the process of writing is actually, for me, not just a creative post process, it's also a clarification process. The act of writing things out and having to communicate what's in my head to other people helps me to clarify my own thinking. Yes. And um, that's amazing. That is. And so right now that topic is AI. AI, that I'm like yeah. A, so I'm just like so curious about it. I'm like, wow. Yeah. So I've been playing out, playing around with like mid-journey and chat GPT and yeah. Bard and, you know, just trying to get a sense mm-hmm. of like, well, how is this tool going to reshape the way we work, the way we yeah. live, you know, the yeah, way the world really works. It's, yeah. it's so fascinating right yeah. now. So that's my current obsession. Definitely one to watch. <laughs> Looking back at your career, um, in terms of, you mentioned it possibly wasn't something you imagined yourself doing today, but kind of is in a way. Um, is there any advice looking back that you'd give to like your younger self on you know, what you've done so far or anyone at the start of their career sort of embarking and aspiring to a similar journey? I think the most important thing for anyone seeking to lead a life and work with purpose is to start by really understanding yourself. And I think this is not something that current 
and traditional education provides us with. You know, so much of education is focused on learning subjects and critical thinking, which is obviously really important. Um, but if we don't learn about ourselves as well, then it's very hard to make the connections between what truly motivates us, you know, what our talents are, what our interests are. And if you can't connect your talent, your interest, your passion with your work and your education, then you miss the dots, you know? And the longer it takes to connect those dots, the longer it takes to find that life or that work that really fills you with joy. And I'm so glad that I asked myself those questions when I was 29, you know, that, you know, after, after having kind of gone through that very, very kind of expected overachiever path where I was so focused on like, in quotation marks, building out my CV and not really thinking about building out me. Yes. And so my advice is to, you know, make sure you focus on really understanding yourself and, you know, your, the things that really spark joy for you. So introspecting, asking yourself the right questions. Um, did you feel like, um, going back to when you did the meditation, do you feel like practices like that help you connect with your inner self as well? Or Well, meditation for me has really become a tool to manage my emotions, to manage anxiety, right. um, to calm my mind, which is, like most minds, quite noisy at times. And as a curious person... I'm always taking in stimuli, mm -hmm. but you know, we are overstimulating ourselves these days. Yeah. You know, we have so much stimulation and you can't really, like if you're constantly taking information in and you're never taking time to just like let your mind and your body yeah. rest, yeah. you don't get any clarity. You're just like bombarded with stuff. So yeah, for me, that's what meditation does. It doesn't give you answers, yeah. but it's a tool to help you process large amounts of information to process your emotions uh, and to kind of make it in this like really chaotic noisy world that we live in it's it's a lot yeah no I completely agree um what's been your proudest moment today like from everything was it when that moment when you said okay I'm now going full-time business fashion what was your sort of proudest moment I don't really have a proudest moment but what makes me feel really connected to my work is when I get a DM from someone who you know might be struggling or sees a little bit of themselves in my journey and because I've been more open recently especially recently about you know my own struggles with my identity and various challenges I've faced along the way um, that sharing a bit of myself helps someone else. And, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point where, you know, where I'm, well, I'll be in Japan or I'll be in New York and someone will stop me on the street. And, you know, like I just, they'll say, oh, I listened to your podcast and it really helps me, you know. That's, that, that gives me a little pride. I'm like, I must be on the right track. No, absolutely. I think you're such an inspiration for so many people um, globally. 
how do you keep yourself inspired? Like, do you have a mentor? Do you read particular things that keep you inspired? Because obviously your day-to-day is, is very hectic. And every time I see you, you're still smiling and, you know, always positive. How do you keep yourself um, in a good space? Well, in part, because I have these habits, healthy habits. Right. I really think in order to lead the kind of life that I have, like I, I went through some burnout and I, you know, I went through an episode of shingles and like lots of signs that I wasn't taking care of myself. So I've spent quite a bit of time, like maybe it's been like 10 years now, really thinking about my own health and wellness. Um, I think that was especially true during the pandemic. I think for a lot of us, it like a lot of focus came on, you know, really realize how fragile our health is. So, um, you know, meditation helps, exercise helps, sleep helps, diet helps. And, you know, I'm not perfect and I have my tough days like everybody else. So Mm -hmm. I also try to not be too hard on myself. You know, like I'm, I'm by nature and by training and by upbringing a perfectionist. And I think probably I was really, really hard on myself when I was younger. So now I try to give myself a break. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to not be the best version of myself in every interaction. I'm going to let people down. You know, I'm going to say something I shouldn't have said. And that's okay. As long as I learn from it and I'm aware of it. And that, you know, the next day, you know, I try to do better. Yeah. I think in this day and age, it's so easy to be hard on yourself especially with social media and everything around us and trying to exactly aspire to be that perfectionist in every single thing we do but I think that's really nice letting yourself off because we're all human Um, and as you said as long as we um, use it as part of a learning experience Um, just with your day-to-day and like week to week do you have a typical day in the life of Imran do you have a typical week or is it just give us an idea of sort of you know, because every time I speak to you, you're doing different things, different projects, traveling the world. Um, is there a typical kind of day or week? Or I'm everything? trying to create that, okay. you know, like as much as it's possible when, as you say, you're constantly traveling and um, there's a lot of variety and I think that that's what keeps me excited, yes. you know, and I think I was really happy to get some rest during the pandemic and during lockdowns because I needed it, I realized I was really burnt out. Excuse me. Um, but then I have to say after a while, I was like, <laughs> I really, like, I just, and this year, um, my partner, Nick Hill and I have been able to travel again. And, you know, we've gone to Egypt and Kuwait and Sri Lanka and Thailand and, you know, Milan and Paris and, Los Angeles and like just and it's so stimulating so like I have that but while I'm traveling yes I'm like am I sleeping enough am I eating enough I have like little rituals like there's certain things I take with me now like an I'm like the same eye mask and nice. like earphone like there's just certain things that you need to have yeah yeah to make you feel like you're going through that ritual of going to bed yes I really really am prioritizing sleep a lot more than I used to um, you know, there's these interviews I did, you know, before the pandemic where it says, oh, he gets up at four in the morning and he starts working. <laughs> and it's true. 
I used to get up so early. Um, even as a youngster, like I put so much pressure on myself when I was in school. I used to get up at like four in the morning to study oh. before tests. My mom used to get up and quiz me, you know, and I just fell into this habit of just like, I was, I'm, I've always been an early riser, yes. but now I'm trying to just, like today, I woke up at 6.30, I checked my aura ring, my, my readiness score wasn't where I wanted it to be, so yeah, I went back to bed. Sleep. Amazing. And like that, just like that prioritization of taking care of myself, Yes. I am not going to be able to do my job. I'm not going to be able to be a good leader. I'm not going to be able to be a good partner. I'm not going to be able to be as good as I want to be if I'm not taking care of myself. For sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So last question, um, we ask all of our guests, um, and you kind of mentioned a little bit like in terms of your eye mask, certain things you always have with you, but if there are three things, say, you know, on your desk when you're doing your blog or you're kind of um, at home or in the office, um, what three things would be part of your sort of mini survival kit? Well, I still take written notes I was just actually like, this is maybe not too much information, but I was just, <laughs> we were just reorganizing my storage and I found all of my notebooks no and calendars going all the way back to university. Oh, so now they're all yeah. together in one box, which is Amazing, for my OCD yeah. brain, like really <laughs> exciting. Cause like one day when I sit down to write a book, like it's just going to be really useful yes. to have that. So I always have a notebook. Um, I actually have a microphone exactly like this on my <laughs> desk because I record all, almost all my podcasts virtually um, because our guests are all around the world. Yeah. And so there's one of these yes. microphones. And, you know, the third thing that I always have with me is, sadly, my You're phone. <laughs> but, you know, like, my whole business was built on... On your phone? Wow. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. built it on yeah. these kinds of devices. Yeah. You know, like, if it wasn't for this... The first iPhone came out in 2007, right. which was, oh, it was June were. 2007, which is six months after I started writing BOF. Right. And if this device did not exist, I can tell you BOF would not exist. So it, I yeah. to give it some credit. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not that, like, as the most interesting response to that question that you ever <laughs> no, had. No, no, no. We, it's, it's, you know, the, the basics are very important. Notebook, mic, phone, of course. Those are the um, tools of my trade, yeah, I guess. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Aran. You've been absolutely amazing. Um, I feel so privileged to have you have you on, on my podcast. Um, for the guests, um, so for the listeners, tell us, is there anything coming up we should say in tune with? Obviously, you've got your newsletter, um, which yeah, is so brilliant like the, read. The thing I would say is, like, we have... The Daily Digest newsletter, which comes out Monday to Saturday. And okay. Saturday is my weekly briefing. And it's not really about fashion exclusively. It's just about whatever's on my mind. And as I said, this week is an AI. The second is a big project we do every uh, fashion week in Paris uh, in, in September, October. It's called the BOF 500. And that's our collection of the most interesting influential people shaping the global fashion industry so right. stay tuned for that and my favorite thing of all is bof voices which is our annual gathering for big thinkers mixing the leaders creators and and disruptors of the fashion industry with the most fascinating people from outside and it's it's my special so place fun. my happy place Thank you so much. I'm sure we'll all be following all of those exciting things and looking forward to having you back on High Street very soon.